0: A debate is raging in the world of classics that, by academic standards, is quite fierce. Maybe even a little epic. It's about the discipline's past, future, and what it needs to do to bridge the two. Today, we talked to Spring 2021 fellow Nandini Pandey, a classics professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who's at the forefront of various initiatives to change the way classics is approached. But more than that, As an Asian American classics professor herself, her own journey up the ranks of arguably one of the most traditional of academic disciplines is emblematic of those very changes.
1: I'm Nandini Pandey, and I'm an associate professor of classics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
0: You'd think that kind of introduction would be uncontroversial. When you hear the classics part, you probably think of the study of ancient Rome and Greece, which is, of course, broadly speaking, not wrong— but that definition is kind of the subject of our story today because, well, classicists are currently debating what classics is and what it should be. Welcome to the future of classics. We felt that uh, since this is going to be a discussion very much driven by you guys, more than by in us. In 2019, uh, the debate caused some drama at the Society for Classical Studies annual conference. The issue was so inflammatory that when it came up, it erupted in an exchange that scholars now euphemistically refer to as the incident.
1: The normal Society for Classical Studies annual conference is um, usually fairly staid. Lots of papers that tend to be fairly dry. Let me just
2: begin by introducing uh, everybody up here. Um, I'm Stephen Hines,
0: University of Washington. The collegial politeness lasts until they get to one panel, which, by academic conference standards, turns out to be anything but dry. Our our panelists, Sarah Bond, uh, in the middle. uh, Most of the attendees at the conference are white, which is why when the moderator introduces one panelist who is black, he sticks out more than most. At the near end, Daniel Padilla-Peralta, assistant professor of classics at Princeton. Daniel Padilla-Peralta of Princeton has become somewhat of a lightning rod for this debate in classics. At this conference, he's part of a panel that wants to address the lack of inclusion in the field.
2: I wanted to talk a little bit um, about citations of scholars of color, of women, and people not traditionally part of the canon.
0: And immediately the temperature in the room rises, especially when they reach the Q&A part of the talk.
2: Hello? Can you hear me? Okay,
0: I'll probably offend all of you. Um. Independent scholar Mary Frances Williams says, among other things, that she's worried that these kinds of calls for more diversity could be linked to a less rigorous approach to teaching the key classics languages, Latin and Greek. A worry we'll explain more later in the episode.
2: You can't teach history without knowing something of the languages. You can't teach literature without knowing something of the languages or we don't have classics. You can hear
0: in the way she and others use that word, classics, the way they almost wield it, that they see it as a special discipline, different from all others like sociology or economics, one that deserves particular deference.
2: For 30 years I've heard you talk about the need for diversity and inclusiveness and reaching out and doing women in the ancient world and all sorts of other areas which is fine, it's interesting, it's important and people who can do that well should do it but maybe we should start defending our discipline in of itself and saying it's western civilization, it matters because it's the west. Western civilization it's is everything. a construct. It, okay. it, things escalate even further from there. Okay, we don't teach Homer, we don't teach Cicero. I teach him every semester. In English? As a survey, yes, undergraduate I English? I do. I have a history PhD. Most departments don't, okay?
0: And then the incident happens.
2: I'm, I'm not say, a socialist, I, okay? I, I, I believe in merit. I believe that the right. journals okay. have articles on the basis of merit. R- right. I, gotcha. I don't look at yeah, the color do, of the author. And you don't think that Sappho has merit. <laughs> okay, you may, have got you, you may have got your job because you're black, but I would prefer to think you got your job because of merit.
1: This caused a lot of tension in the room. She continued to speak and get more and more anxious, but also more aggressive.
0: Mary Frances Williams is then asked to leave, and the society releases a statement condemning racism. There is more debate about whether the actual words she used were, in fact, racist. After all, she said you may have got your job because you're black, but soon the discussion becomes about far more than parsing her words.
2: Uh, uh, as You're saying that as, the, as, as, the people as, of color, black let me people, Hispanic people you, I, can't I let you, do I it? Let you, I let you finish. They're so not now capable? I, I did not interrupt you once. So you are going to let me talk. You are going to let someone who has been historically marginalized from the production of knowledge and classics talk. And here's what I have to say about the vision of classics that you've outlined. If that is, in fact, the vision that affirms you and your white supremacy, I want nothing to do with it. I hope the field dies that you've outlined and that it dies as swiftly as possible. And I hope. I fervently hope that those of you in the room will take stock and consideration of what has happened here.
1: In the end, he actually came up with a response that said he should get his job because he's black, because the field has been so hostile for so long toward the perspectives of minorities that we need to actively and consciously do something to diversify the points of view represented and to diversify the ways of thinking that get credence within our field.
0: The incident led to a flurry of responses, many articles both attacking and defending Daniel El Padilla-Peralta.
1: Moronic social justice war on classics threatens our civilization. Classics in education. Social justice critics seek to impoverish students. So woke left wants to erase classic literature for kids. <laughs> like all
0: crises, this one forced people to pick sides or at least form an opinion. Staying on the sidelines was no longer tenable.
1: What it did was it really made very visible and very impossible not to confront the blatant racism and the assumptions behind so many of this, you know, this crowd of scholars that's in this conference, how many of them were actually secretly thinking the kinds of things that this one independent scholar happened to voice.
0: It leaves Nandini and others with the question, who is classics actually for and where does it get its authority? We're going to start looking into that question by finding out more about Nandini's journey through classics. In many ways, her story reflects and refracts some of the debates going on.
1: Watching these um, battle lines forming, as someone who's neither black nor white but Asian, um, I certainly don't want to compare my experience as a as a classicist in a in, the, in a so-called model minority, and I really hate that term. Uh, to the experiences of my black colleagues who have been through much worse than me. But it has been really interesting to watch this conversation unfold as someone who's from a third party from a different race that isn't always very prominent in the public eye.
0: As an Indian-American classicist, Nandini is in the clear minority, kind of an outsider. But this status is nothing new in her life.
1: I grew up in an Indian-American household, and I went to an American public school, and to some extent, I felt out of place in both spaces. When I was home, uh, my mother loved me, and she really supported my education, and she's an amazing woman and one of my my very greatest heroes in life. Um, But she was also struggling to belong, and she was very busy with work. She was an engineer. She worked long hours.
0: As a self-described latchkey kid, Nandini found company and comfort in literature.
1: I didn't feel comfortable in my school either, and I I didn't really have anywhere to be that felt at home until I discovered reading and great books.
0: She says the exclusivity of Greek and Roman literature especially appealed to her.
1: I always loved keys and codes. And I remember when I was in elementary school, I learned the Greek alphabet with my friends so that we could have a sort of code language with each other. We didn't actually learn the Greek language, but we transliterated our notes into Greek characters so we could pass them without being understood by our teachers. Um, I loved the, the gods, and I loved all those stories. And so to me, this was classics was a really nurturing place because it didn't seem to belong any more or less to me than my classmates.
0: Not only was it exclusive... It was also prestigious.
1: I remember my, my boyfriend's dad had gone to Princeton, actually, and he said that uh, this was you know this was the language of empire. It was through Latin uh, that the Romans formed the kinds of minds that could rule the Western world. And that was attractive to me. It, it spoke to me because it felt like if I could learn Latin, if I could get to know classics, I could know something that had been important to the creation of authority in the society that I didn't quite feel like I belonged in.
0: This sense of awe around the classics was not something her mother shared, but she supported Nandini nonetheless.
1: It's a stereotype, which is partially true, that many Indian kids feel pressure by their parents to go on and do something pragmatic that will set them up well financially for life. So my mom is a very imaginative and very kind and generous, but also a very pragmatic person. And she is a true engineer in many senses of that. And so she she was really kind of mystified. Why was I so into these poems that were written 2,000 years ago? What could I possibly see in them? And above all, would it ever give me a job? Um, So she was she was supportive. She knew that she knew that she could trust me to make decisions and she knew that if we had a fight about it, that I would win.
0: (laughs) Fast forward to college and Andini wins the chance to formalize her love of classics.
1: I signed up for Latin. It was my very first class of my very first day of college and I still remember walking into that room, being so terrified of what awaited me, sitting at this tiny little table and the professor, Gil Rose, came in and he just stood there for a whole minute maybe and observed us. And then he just started speaking the first lines of the Aeneid. Arma virumque cano, troiae qui primus ab oris, italiam fato profugus la And those words just sent shivers down my spine.
0: The Aeneid is a work that would take on significance for Nandini for several reasons.
1: Virgil's Aeneid is one of my favorite works in Latin or in any language. And it was written around the, in the age of Augustus. It features a Trojan hero named Aeneas, whose city has been sacked by the Greeks. And he is left homeless and a refugee with all of the other Trojans who survived this long Trojan war that is recounted in the Iliad. So what he does is he has to gather his people together, these migrants and asylum seekers, and he leads them across the Mediterranean through many shipwrecks and twists and turns until they finally get to Italy, where they have to make a new home in a place that they've never known before.
0: Nandini says that for her and many scholars, the Aeneid stands out as a parable of wandering and the search for belonging.
1: So this adventure of traveling and leaving a place that is no longer hospitable and finding a new place to be and to belong, um, even if that place doesn't really want you, even if there are hardships that await, but building something new there, um, I think is just a wonderful terrible for the journey of many immigrants and minorities into classics, but also for the journey that classics itself has to take as it reinvents itself for the 21st century.
0: From there, Nandini further pursues a career as a classicist as she studies in places like Oxford and Cambridge. And the deeper she gets, the more she's confronted with what classics as a discipline means to Western society and what it really is.
1: Classics as a field was invented comparatively recently within human history. A few people usually elites, people in monasteries, the, the 1% that had access to books and enough leisure time to study them, had been reading classics in many parts of the world, not just Europe, but also the Arabic world actually did a great deal of work in, in keeping Greek and Roman texts alive. And we don't think about that enough when we study classics.
0: Among all the good work that was being done by classicists, she also comes across famous scholars who use the discipline to advance racist thinking. Scholars like Enoch Powell.
1: He was a legitimate classic scholar. He was a really good scholar. In fact, he got a job early on in Sydney. Uh, but then he came back to the UK, went into politics, and became a member of parliament. And this is a time in the UK where people like me, um, Indians and other people who were, who were part of the former British empire, were flocking to the UK to do jobs that many white people didn't want to do, things like drive the buses or take out the trash. And even today, you find a lot of Punjabis like me um, as janitors at Heathrow Airport
2: in 15 or 20 years time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man.
1: He gave this very famous speech in 1968 called the Rivers of Blood speech. But the cameras in 1968 didn't capture the following words. Enoch Powell
2: said, as I look ahead, I'm filled with foreboding. Like the
1: Roman, I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. He used this to imply that the Thames, that that Britain would soon be covered in the blood of a race war. And he used the Aeneid to justify his fears. There was outrage and protests on both sides of the argument. And he's the only man that's prepared to risk to say what the ordinary people thinks. And the thing that shocks me that Enoch Powell should have known better then, and I'm sure that he did, is that the Aeneid is actually a narrative of an immigrant migrating through great hardship and finding a home in a new place, so that the whole arc and the impulse of the Aeneid is exactly counter to how Powell was using it.
0: Nandini finds that this kind of instrumentalization of classics to advance racist agendas is no isolated incident. In fact, it can be found in many parts of the discipline's history, and it grows out of an inherent sense of elitism associated with it.
1: Classics has been a province of privilege and... It has been important to the the idea of education for very many years, but also to the construction of elitism. If you were lucky enough to be able to go to school um if you were one of the landed gentry that could be spared from your tasks on the farm um you would probably have to you would very often have to learn how to read and write latin and greek not because it was of any particular pragmatic use but because this was part of how elites were constructing themselves in various parts of europe
0: in many ways classics was almost synonymous with the very concept of education
1: most universities got their start around departments that studied latin and greek and also the bible so classics was central and it was often a founding subject of the first modern universities that were created around the 18th century. Um, in many universities in the U.S., it was one of the very first majors that was offered, to, to use a modern term.
0: The American Founding Fathers, for instance, were among those who basked in the glow of classics.
1: You can go through and look at the, the documents of the Founding Fathers and how many of them had, had one of the very few classical educations that was happening at that time in, in the Americas. Um, so classics is central to the, the construction of privilege that is the modern university system.
0: Also, that affinity for privilege fit very neatly into colonial conceptions of the world.
1: Classics also has been a handmaiden to colonialism and other forms of dominating parts of the world beyond Europe. It was through classics and the idea of of carrying on a legacy of Greco-Roman antiquity, as well as through the Bible, that many European nations justified their supremacy over non-white people and argued that they were superior over these people and therefore deserved to go and colonize them.
0: Rome, in particular, was seen as a unifying force in European identity and a pillar in the construction of whiteness.
1: Classics has been called an origin story or a foundation myth for Europe and for the West. There was no absolute line of lineage or genealogy that meant that Greece and Rome were foundational cultures that somehow passed a heritage onward and upward to Europe. Uh, But in the 19th century, European scholars found it very convenient to construct themselves as the sort of teleological end of an upward chain of history that culminated with themselves.
0: What's more, Nandini says that classics comes to be used by white supremacists to justify their beliefs.
1: There have been many actual classics scholars who have supported racism, who have supported causes of white supremacy, even as far back as the 19th century, there are, and there are still classic scholarships and fellowships that are named after some of these professional classicists who supported white supremacy, people like Gildersleeve. There were uh, plenty of scholars who are cited on white supremacist websites today, like Tenny Frank, who blamed the fall of the Roman Empire on race mixing, on too many foreigners being led into Rome. So when we get to the 1960s in Britain, um, We find scholars like Enoch Powell very much in heir to, by then, already quite a long tradition of using classics to ballast white supremacist causes. Classics was also very convenient to fascist leaders like Mussolini and Hitler. Um, So there is a very long tradition of this that, that has had horrible consequences in the 20th century.
0: Though many of those kinds of racist beliefs are not overtly present in current curricula, Classics still retains its sheen of elitism. It is, after all, very difficult to excel in the field partly because it requires mastering two ancient languages
1: it also is framed as much more rigorous and analytical than other languages and actually that kind of language that that teachers and professors use can actually be alienating to some students because it's implicitly messaging this field is really hard only we only take the best students we only take the people who are already the best of the best and that exclusionary quality is compounded by the fact that you You typically have to do a lot of Latin and a lot of Greek to be able to get into grad schools. And then once you're in grad school, there's a very high attrition rate. There's a lot of exams and a lot of gatekeeping.
0: Which brings us back to the incident.
2: You can't teach history without knowing something of the languages. You can't teach literature without knowing something of the languages or we don't have classics.
0: Part of what some classicists are objecting to is what they perceive as a dilution of the teaching of the languages. Though Nandini and other scholars pushing for inclusion value Latin and Greek, they are open to decentering them in the curricula. That's just one of their proposals. Here are some more.
1: What people are asking for is basically partially a change of branding. Stop using the word classics because that implies that this group of things that we study has an automatic value and prestige. Start thinking of Greece and Rome, in terms of their global engagements with other cultures, so maybe think of it in terms of global antiquities, start thinking more about Near Eastern or African connections with classics, um, and change up our pedagogy make it more inclusive.
0: What you might notice as you listen to those proposals is that they're not that different to similar calls for the decolonization of other disciplines. So why do these proposed changes get classicists so riled up?
1: There is so much self-credentialing and so much gatekeeping in these responses There's a tendency for people to just correct um, or to call attention to their own qualifications, to call attention to the fact that they went to Harvard or went to Oxford and they worked very hard, um, that classics is foundational. These are things that these people told themselves about why they wanted to get into classics. And now that people are asking questions about the nature of the authority of classics, they interpret this as a threat to their own authority as people and a threat to their own prestige and a threat maybe to their own salaries or to their own jobs.
0: For Nandini, this kind of backlash gets at the heart of her research. She studies diversity in Rome and has found that what many people are defending when they defend the idea of classics, specifically Rome, is based on a false presumption of ethnic homogeneity. She's found that Rome was actually filled with influences from all over the empire, and that it wasn't simply quote-unquote white.
1: Like Western civilization, whiteness is a concept that had to be invented. It's not a concept that's intrinsic to the human species, and what I think is fascinating about Greece and Rome is that they transport us to a time before race existed as we know it. So the Greeks and Romans understood that there was human difference. Um, they knew that some people looked different and acted different, but they typically assigned these differences to environmental or cultural factors. And that means that we have nothing approaching the systemic and scientific, I, I should say, the systemic and pseudoscientific idea that there are certain biological differences between different groups of people that set them into permanent relationships of hierarchy against one another.
0: Nandini says Romans tended to have stereotypical but not necessarily ideological explanations for human differences
1: they believed that people had certain skin tones or certain temperaments because of the climates that they grew up in. So they thought, for instance, that Gauls were were very pale, also hot-headed, quick to anger. Um, They thought that that people from the South were smarter (laughs) and craftier, uh, but maybe physically more weak. They had a few stereotypes like that, but they didn't think that those were determinants of somebody's value or someone's characteristics. And they also didn't think that they passed down forever generationally.
0: So their views about race were less hierarchical than modern conceptions. Nandini also says that Roman openness to integrating new peoples into the empire was a key reason for its expansion.
1: There's no sense of ethnic purity. The Romans' earliest myths are about immigrants arriving. Aside from Aeneas, who is a refugee, we have Romulus who founds a city but then needs people to populate the city. So what he does is he opens the doors of Rome and invites people from all over Italy, which at that time was a very multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic place, to come and move to the city. And he didn't care what their background was, he didn't care if they had been criminals or slaves or anything like that. Many people who report these myths later on actually say this is the secret to the Roman success. They were, they were really inclusive, they were willing to enfranchise the people that they enslaved, they were willing to marry outside their groups, and it's through measures like this that Rome's population grew strong, that it was able to take over so much of the known world
0: self-hate. Nandini is well aware of the irony that though white supremacists use Roman imagery such as the eagle and the concepts of blood and soil to prop up ideas of purity, it is Rome's inclusive approach to citizenship that strengthened, not weakened it.
1: Nothing could be further from the Roman conception of belonging because to be Roman was never a matter of blood and soil. Um, Many of Rome's first kings were imports from Etruria, from a nearby area. It was possible to become a citizen, even if you had first been imported to Rome as an enslaved person. Um, The Roman practice of slavery was not at all race or ethnicity based as in the US. And so you could arrive in the city uh, in chains as a foreigner, but then after service, um, after perhaps as a reward from a master who appreciated you, you could become freed and then your children would themselves be Roman citizens. So they have a very flexible and open conception of citizenship, which is actually quite remarkable within world history. Once you give people buy into the state, once you give them a way to benefit from and to be included, then you have people who care about the success of the state.
0: And so Nandini's study of diversity in Rome has become a kind of metaphor and example that she hopes classics as a discipline can learn from.
1: I'm a member of of several of these groups that that really are trying to share resources to advocate for anti-racist teaching or that are trying to bring together minorities in the field. Students are very much on the side of these kind of pedagogical changes. And in many institutions, they're leading the demand for decolonizing and for rethinking our pedagogy. There's one great movement that wants to teach history from below so that rather than always focus on literary texts, which usually represent a narrow band of Rome's elites, we're looking at how we can tell the story by, say, looking at funeral inscriptions from a, from freed slaves, um, looking at material remains for what the life might have been like of someone who worked in a Pompeian brothel. Uh, we can't just trust in teaching people Latin and Greek to a very perfect level and spending all of our resources on language teaching. I think we need to get people to think about the voices that our sources represent, but also the ones that they leave out. And I think we owe it to the people who came before us, including all of those nameless people from classical antiquity, to do a better job of more vigorously imagining their points of view.
0: So with all these changes taking place in the discipline, what are Nandini's answers to the questions, who is classics for and where does it get its authority?
1: Classics is for everyone. And it's for people like you, it's for people like me, and it gets its authority from precisely that fact that it is so open. It is, it is a conversation that is so open-ended and is so able to refract itself around many questions of concern to many cultures and to many people. Um, that's the joy of classics is it's, it's a continuing conversation over time and space among many people about how meaning is made, why we tell the stories we do, how we imagine the history, and how authority comes about.
0: That openness has done wonders in her own family. Though her mother was initially a little skeptical about 2,000-year-old poems, they are now a growing point of connection for the two of them.
1: She's gotten really engaged and really interested in what I do. My mother is one of the most generous people I know, and... As I get older, I'm so touched when I realize all the times that she tried to feed and clothe and take care of people, even when she sometimes lacked that kind of sustenance herself. That's something that I would really like to be able to give back to the field. Now that I have a position of relative security, and it was certainly an uphill journey to get here. Um, definitely, I have faced many people who who looked at me and thought, or asked, "What brings you to classics? What, why do you? What do you have to do with the field?" And who have conveyed that I don't belong. I've gotten through that and I'm lucky enough to have tenure and a job, which is it's no small <laughs> gift in, in these days. I'm just so inspired by my mother's example of always being welcome, welcoming and always being hospitable and letting people into her house. And the house of classics is big enough and strong enough to only be better the more people we let in.
0: That's it for today's episode. You can listen to more of our interviews with American Academy fellows and distinguished visitors on our website, AmericanAcademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and Twitter. This was the last episode to be produced by Tony Andrews. We wish him all the best in his future endeavors and thank him for two years of terrific podcasts. Production assistance for this episode of Beyond the Lecture is by Denise Gammon. I'm your host, RJ McGill. Thanks for listening.